Ephesians chapter 5. Take your Bibles and join me in Ephesians chapter 5. We are marching our way through this book ever so slowly, but I think ever so um, intentionally to just see what God has to say to us from this book. Uh, Our theme throughout this entire study has been the work and wealth of God in Christ Jesus. And we'll see that portrayed in very practical and applicational ways for us today. Ephesians chapter 5, we've made our way down to verse 15. Let me read the three verses that will occupy our attention today. Ephesians 5 verse 15, Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but instead understand what the will of the Lord is. February 5th, 2057. Does that date mean anything to you? Think about it. February 5th, 2057. Well, don't hurt yourself. It didn't mean anything to me either until last week. I came upon a website called The Death Clock. It asks you for a few minimal details and then spits out a date that you're supposed to die. That's my date. I input the details and got back the date, February 5th, 2057. I was actually surprised I would last that long. (laughs) I will be, according to this website, 88 years, one month, and two days old. And then reportedly on that day, I will breathe my last and my heart will stop on this earth. That's deathclock.org for those of you who really want to know. (laughs) And don't do it during the service. (laughs) We're going to have people really depressed. It says next week. No, no, just stay with me. Website's obviously a bit of a spoof based on averages and algorithms, but it's an interesting exercise to think about the reality that there is a date that God has marked in heaven, from heaven, that will be Rick Holland's last day. He knows it. He knows the hour and the minute that I will die. Psalm 139 verse 16 says, Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book all were written the days that were ordained for me. God has written out not only the day of your death, but he has ordained and written out the goings and comings and the interactions of every single day of our life. There is no surprise to our great God. He did not wake up and said, wonder what's going to happen to you today. He has ordained them. God knows about every day we'll live. And for those of us who know and love him, there will be love and support and grace and mercy and encouragement and enablement every single day. I recently attended the memorial, the funeral for my mentor in the faith theologically, Dr. George Zimmick. 
During that service, I remember listening to the people reflect on his life, and it was, it was encouraging and it was sobering. The discipline he had was unmatched by anyone I've ever met. The holiness he pursued was known to all. The legacy he left, well, I'm standing here because of that. Those were all powerful reminders of what a well-lived life looks like. You're not really ready to die until you know how to live. But you don't know really how to live until you're ready to die. That's where Paul aims our hearts, strangely enough, in these three verses of Ephesians 5, verses 15, 16, and 17. In fact, let me back up for a moment and say this. In these three verses, Paul provides a simple, profound, and I would say comprehensive philosophy of life, philosophy of living. Parents. These three verses can serve as pillars for raising your children. Husbands and wives. These three simple verses can serve as glue that keeps together you and your spouse in purpose and enjoyment and and in, in holiness, joy. With your Christian friends, these three verses can be a path. You walk together in accountability and true fellowship. It can define your friendships. And even among our unbelieving friends and our unbelieving family, these three verses can serve as an attractive curiosity to the power of the gospel if we live this way. It's talking about being a biblically wise man or a biblically wise woman. I've titled this sermon today, Living on Purpose. And the reason is most of us, by default, don't live on purpose. We live passively, responsively. We wake up and respond to what's on the day's agenda. But God calls us in these three verses to live with purpose, with intentionality, to live with direction, to live with a divine agenda that marks out our our days, our hours, and even, even our minutes. Each of these verses, by the way, is is interesting because it has a negative element and a positive element. And he kind of switches up which comes first. Look, Look at verse 15 for a moment. He begins by an admonition, by an injunction, a command that most of us have known, if not even memorized. Therefore, be careful how you walk. There's the positive. Not as unwise men, negative. Then he comes back to the positive as wise. Making the most of your time, there's a positive. Because the days are evil, there's a negative. Then don't be foolish, there's the negative. But understand what the will of the Lord is, there's the positive. So he has these tensions, these antinomies that happen in these verses. The the right way and the wrong way, the righteous path, the unrighteous path, the good and the bad, the holy and the unholy, the, the way we should go and the way we should avoid. We're talking about pursuing biblical wisdom for living, which is more than biblical knowledge. There are many people who know a lot about the Bible, but whose lives don't reflect the God of the Bible. These verses are going to tell us, I don't want to overpromise or overstate it, but these verses tell you how to live life in three simple verses with three simple points. So I want to unpack that with you together. 
Three marks of living on purpose. Three marks of living life on purpose. I kind of struggle with, is this three marks of life on purpose, three marks of living on purpose? So I just said, let's put them both in there. Three marks of living life on purpose. And I think we'll get away with it. The first is in verse 15. It involves, the first mark is intentional awareness. Intentional awareness. The first word in verse 15 is therefore. I think that's concluding his paragraph on living as children of light, living as light living in in distinction from an immoral, godless world and living a holy, noticeable life. Therefore, because of that injunction to live as children of light, as believers, therefore, be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. Let's start by looking a little closer at the translation. The phrase, be careful how you walk, includes an important word in the original Greek. Now, I don't like belaboring the Greek a lot with you, but this is an important one. I'm going I'm to teach you a Greek word today, and you can have fun with it this week, okay? Blepo. Can you say that one time? Blepo. Good class. Blepo is the Greek word that means to see. Now, why is that important? Because that's the anchor of this verse, and I'm not really sure why most translations don't anchor on this. He says, therefore... See or look or notice carefully, look carefully at how you walk. A literal translation would be, therefore, look how carefully you are walking. Notice yourself. Notice your life. Be attentive. Be intentional. Be aware. We can say it this way. Have a philosophy of life. Know what you're about in your life. Know what your aim is. Know what your goal is. Know what you're doing to get there. Now, as we've been talking about since chapter 4, verse 1, he says, look carefully how you are walking. The word for walking is a synonym for what? Remember? Living. Be careful and look to and notice and have a plan for how you're living. Look carefully at how you are living. In the book of Haggai, there's the the cyclical phrase, consider your ways. Same thing, consider your ways. Think about yourself. Do you look at yourself? This is really an invitation. Can I say this to personal retreat for yourself, whether it's 10 minutes this afternoon or an hour sometime or a time at the coffee shop or even getting away for a whole day and just saying, wait a minute, what's going on in my life? We tend to just live life responsibly rather than on purpose. This is a comma in your life. Look carefully how you're living. The reason is you are called to be a child of God, His Son, the light, and you are light. So stop and think about it. Think about it carefully. Paul's not just saying live carefully. He's saying think about how you're living carefully before you even get to the living. Have a philosophy of life. The command functions also as a conclusion to this section on living as children of light. And I think it also is a hinge in that it introduces the next section on walking with the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. And the contrast is obvious. 
There's the negative in these, live as a wise, not a foolish, live as someone who's thinking, not unthinking. It goes back to being different from chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3, which is being a child of darkness and being dead in our trespasses and sins. Wake up and live life on purpose is the point. Joel Beakey and Brian Crosby write, Biblical wisdom is right knowledge displayed rightly. That's really helpful. Biblical wisdom is right knowledge, you have to have the knowledge, displayed rightly. It involves living. Then he says, the authors say, that God is wise means that He perfectly displays perfect knowledge in His Word, in creation, in providence, in redemption. Wisdom combines knowledge with righteousness. That's important. Wisdom combines knowledge with righteousness. It has a moral quality to it. In essence, it is good and true and noble. Then they go on to write, the more we align our thoughts with and hearts with the thoughts of God found in His Word, the more we will appropriate and display godly wisdom because wisdom comes from God, end quote. Wisdom is right knowledge displayed rightly. You know what I find is, is to my shame about wisdom, about walking in a way that, that pleases the Lord, that honors the, the, the mind of God, that gives us wisdom in, in our decisions and in our acting? I find it embarrassing when I think of how little I ask for this. In James 1.5, the half-brother of our Lord says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and that's euphemistic, because that includes all of us. He's not saying, if there happens to be someone who lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, especially in the midst of a trial, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Listen to this. Listen to what's true about our God. God will then give generously and without holding back, without reproach, and it will be given to him. So all of us face decisions, small and large and immediate and long-term and profound and simple all the time that require wisdom, the best of alternatives. Do you ask God for that? How many decisions do we really submit to the Lord in prayer before we make them? <laughs> He's ready to give it without holding back. 1 Corinthians 1.30, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. He became to us wisdom. So, so much of life is our relationship with Jesus of imitation. We know him better. We know him more intimately so we can be like him because he is wisdom incarnate. This is Paul's summative counsel for a philosophy of life. And he begins by saying, are you even thinking about it? Are you cognizant to have a, a way to live, a philosophy of living? We've talked about this in the past, but can I suggest just very practically, one way to think about this is, is by looking at our roles and the goals we have for those roles. All of us have roles in our life. They're all based on relationships. What roles has God placed you in? For example, are you a parent? you have a relationship with your kids? Are you a son or a daughter? Do you have a relationship with your parents? Are you a husband 
or wife. You have a relationship with your spouse, a boyfriend or girlfriend, an employee, an employer. You have a relationship with each other, a teacher with students, a student with teachers, a homemaker with everyone that she serves, a disciple or a leader, subordinate at your job, on and on and on. We all have different roles. In fact, I would say every one of your relationships involves a role that, that you play in that. Well, here's a question with, with Paul's admonition in mind. If you're going to think carefully, look carefully at how you're living, do you have specific goals for those roles that God has placed you in? Oh, it's great to say, I want to be a, a helpful, a godly, a, a transformative dad. Okay, what are you doing for that? Reading material on it, studying scripture on it, talking to other dads about it? Or is it just a desire that's left in the desire category? I, I want to be a good son or daughter. What are you doing? What are you doing to be a better son to your dad, mom, or daughter? Employee, employer, we can go down the list. What are your goals and do you have a plan to make those moments count in the relationship, which will be the next phrase he gives us to redeem those moments, redeem those time. What are your goals? Listen, if you don't put action plans to your goals, they will stay grandiose, ethereal, and unreachable ideas. I remember very clearly a young man who's beginning his studies um, in, he, uh, in seminary many years ago. And I said, well, what are your goals in life and ministry and growing up in the Lord and being a pastor, he said, I want to be an expert in Scripture. That's a great goal. It's fantastic, especially if you're going to be a pastor. I want to be an expert in Scripture. And I said, great, what are you doing for that? He says, well, I'm going to seminary. I said, well, that'll help, but what are you personally doing? What's your, what's your outline for yourself of how you're going to become an expert in God's Word? And he looked at me like he saw a ghost. He said, are you reading? Are you memorizing? Are you studying the... Minor prophets and which were exilic and which were post-exilic and which were pre-exilic? Do you, do, do you know? Began asking him questions. If you want to be an expert, drumroll, you have to actually study. What are your goals for the roles that you want to be in? Are you looking carefully at your life and saying, am I living these values out on purpose? Do you have a plan? Again, a great prescription is have a series of moments, a retreat with yourself and just with a Bible and an open pad and a pen and say, who do I want to be? What do I want to be like? What am I doing to get there? It'd be really helpful. Intentional awareness. Are you aware that you have a philosophy of life and does it need to be bettered? A second mark of living life on purpose, intentional awareness. Number two, urgent stewardship. Urgent stewardship. This is a passage that most of us kind of know intuitively. We, we quote instinctively. Verse 16, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Going back to the previous verse, if you want to live in wisdom and not unwise, it involves this participle, making the most of your time. Interesting how it's translated in several translations, modern translations. Making the most of your time is a New American Standard. Some translations say redeeming the time. 
The ESV says making the best use of your time. All those are very helpful. It's used, built on a metaphor in the original language of redeeming, cashing in for making the best use of your time and efforts. Redeem it. God has given you something, redeem it. Cash it in. Be a responsible steward of it. You know, God has given you a life that he expects a return on. He expects it to be redeemed. How many parables do we have of talents where Jesus says a certain amount of talents was given to one and two and three and two did this and the one buried it and the owner comes back and says, that's not what I expected. What are you going to tell the Lord about what you've done with this life he's given you? Oh, I'm not talking about the end. I'm talking about this afternoon. What are you going to do to be responsible for this gracious gift of time God has given you? It's amazing how many books and seminars there are about how Christians should have a budget for money. (laughs) Money's valuable, but it's not your most valuable possession. Time is far more valuable to us than money. Money can be can be won or lost. Once time is gone, it's gone forever. Physicist John Archibald Wheeler said, this is interesting, time is what prevents everything from happening at once. Okay, that's a little bit more philosophical than I can handle. So what do you do with your time? Paul is clear that time is a commodity a gift which must be managed, must be cashed in, must be redeemed. Notice that the, the budgeting or expenditure of our time is a, has a context here because the days are evil. One of the things that our evil world does most effectively is rob us of time. It helps us waste time. The more I thought about this over the last two weeks in preparation for this, this study, this sermon, I was looking at my own life and said, one of Satan's best traps that he sets for me is wasting time. Just wasting time. Whether it's watching something, doing something, not doing something, procrastinating something. I think it's interesting how Peter talks about... <laughs> talks about our life. This is humbling. 1 Peter 1.17, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves, live lives, conduct yourselves in fear. Listen to this. During the time of your stay on the earth. He talks about life as just a visit here compared to eternity in eternity. Conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on the earth. Your short visit here, Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. My death clock said 88, by the way. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Then, accordingly, in Psalm 90, verse 12, so teach us, Moses says, asking God, teach us, to number our days. Listen to this connection. So we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Hear the connection between time and wisdom? Echoing 
exactly what we heard in Paul. How many of you know the famous statement by C.T. Studd? Only one life will soon be passed, but only what's done for Christ will what? Last. And then Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These are all about investments of our time, redeeming the time, taking advantage of the time. Solomon had his way of saying this to young people. You guys have heard it said many times that unfortunately, um, youth is wasted on the young. That's, that's true in so many ways. Solomon says, remember your creator, Ecclesiastes 12, 1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. There's the evil days we just talked about. And you have no, and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. S.M. Baugh writes, the main thing to note here is that this lends urgency to the seriousness in which believers must take care to conduct their lives. Urgency to the seriousness of our consideration of how we live our lives. Now, the context here, as I said, is very important. The days are evil. Why are the days evil? Because they're controlled by the God of this age, according to chapter 2, verse 2, the devil. Everything about this world, everything about the satanic forces that move it sucks the stewardship out of our living unless we are deliberate and careful and intentional. I think one of the evils of our day is the waste of time that it presents us. Paul understood this in his own life. One of the most sobering and humbling passages in all the Bible is in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. To the Ephesians, by the way, the elders at this church of the, whose letter we're reading, he said this, Ephesians 20, verse 24. Just listen to this with the gravity that he says it. Paul says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Let me read that again. I do not consider my life, Paul says, of any account, any importance as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What's interesting is Paul had considered his life. He had done what he told the Ephesians to do, to redeem the time, to consider their lives, to weigh it all out, to have a plan. And his conclusion was exactly what Jesus says. Those who wish to save their life will lose it. Those who lose it for my sake will find it, Matthew 16 says. And he gave up his life on his own account and redeemed it for the life of gospel faithfulness. I believe God has laid out a course for each of us to follow. It's not hard for a Christian to understand this, but it is hard to be all in, all in for the gospel all in for Christ. We're in a battle. The days are evil. We'll see in chapter 6 that the, the schemes of the devil, I love the old King James, the wiles of the devil are at work within us. And we will study. We're going we're gonna to have a whole study on Satan's devices that he does 
He tempts, he lies, he distorts, he deceives, he distracts. Here he referred to this time that we used to walk as being dead. And now we walk alive and in wisdom. The days are evil, which is our time now. I think it's the time between now and the second coming, the first coming and the second coming, referenced in Ephesians 1.21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, I think that's the days of evil, but in the one to come. To the Galatians, he wrote, Christ gave himself up for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And later, he's going to instruct us, if we can peek ahead in chapter 6, verse 13, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist when? In the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. To sum it up, living life on purpose means learning how to navigate a righteous life in a jungle of evil around us, and it means using your time wisely. A question we ought to be able to answer before each other and before the Lord is what? What draws you away from the Lord by Time distractions. What sucks the time right out of your life and purpose? Where do you waste time? And can we be clear with each other? We, we all waste time. That doesn't mean we don't have recreation. That doesn't mean we don't have, have hobbies and things that we enjoy. We can do all things to the glory of God, but there's the answer, isn't it? If I can't do what I'm doing to the glory of God, then it is a waste of time. Great opportunity for care groups to kind of noodle on where, what's stealing our time? What are we not redeeming? We only have a certain amount of time. Tough question. Ready? What if the Lord told you, you are going to die tomorrow night at six o'clock? And you knew that for certain. How differently would you live today and tomorrow knowing that you were going to be in heaven or in eternity tomorrow night than if you didn't know that? The urgency of thinking about what you would do with your time if you knew your time was short is the answer to what we should be doing with our time. What if you knew you had a week, a month, a year, a decade, or live to the ripe old age of 88 years, two months, and a couple of days. Do you feel the stewardship of your life? Do you understand your time as a commodity and a gift from God? The third mark of living life on purpose Intentional awareness, urgent stewardship, and number three, yielded choices. You could even say yielded decisions. So then, consequently, verse 17, do not be foolish. There's the contrast. 
If you're not redeeming the time, if you're not looking carefully at your life, you're being foolish. So don't be foolish. But verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Listen, the most misunderstood theological concept, I think, is the will of God. What's God's will for your life? I remember a guy many years ago in his first year of seminary who was convinced that this girl who he had met and he liked, it was God's will for them to get married. And so he rashly and very unwisely thought she should be informed of that fact. He says, look, I don't don't know how to tell you this, but I'm pretty sure that God's will for, for us is to get married. Interesting, God didn't tell her that was his will for her life. And uh, that never materialized. How do you find God's will? How do you find God's will? What what would you answer if someone, if your kids said to you, hey, how do I know the will of God for my life? Let's first of all break down the word will. Understand what the will of God is. The will is a simple word. It means desire, intention. What are God's desires? What are God's intentions for your life? That's his will. Living according to God's will is actually then simpler than we might think. It means seeing things as God sees them. It means acting and reacting according to his judgments. It means submitting to his standards instead of your own. It means, in short, doing what God wants as opposed to what we want if those are in conflict. And I think the goal for Christian life is to make our will what God wants Our wills are in conjunction with each other. So where do we find God's judgments? Where do we find God's perspective? Where do we find God's intentions? Where do we discover God's will? Drum roll in the Bible. Yes, you caught me. This is your read your Bible more sermon. You're right. Yes, It's in his written word, the Bible. How can you ever be confident of God's will for your life if you don't know what his will for your life is in his word? He's not been unclear. He's been very clear. This is an important application of what Paul says in the last phrase of verse 17. Look, he says, he doesn't say you must live God's will. Look at what he says. You must understand Perceive God's will. It's a pretty interesting phrase. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's, a, that's an admonition. That's a command to figure it out. Where do you figure it out? You're an expert in God's word. You read it with an eye for what is God like? What does God expect? How does God empower Living according to God's will simply means yielding your decisions to Him. Yielding your decisions to Him. Yielded decisions, yielded choices. For example, Paul told the Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Just what he told the Ephesians. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.3. And in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's to be thankful in everything, not for everything, but in everything you, you give thanks. You can find God and his word and his will in every circumstance. And there's something for which we can be thankful from him. 
To the Colossians, Paul said, For this reason, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Colossians 1.9. You be filled with the knowledge of His will. I just, I just wonder if that's how we pray for each other, if that's how we pray with each other that my sweet wife Kim would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, that our elders would be, that my friends would be, that our church would be, that my acquaintances would be. Now remember, wisdom is making decisions that are best in light of God. Life is all about decisions. You live life in the, in the crucible of decision-making Wisdom sometimes comes beyond the imperatives of Scripture, though. For example, do not commit adultery. That one's easy to apply. Do not murder. Got that one down. Do this, don't do that. Very easy to, to apply. What about which car to buy? You say, ah, oh, that's just up to me. Really? If we do all things according to His will, His will measures on everything. He's not going to tell us which color, how many miles, how old, what the tires look like, but there are biblical principles that would inform every decision. What's the wisest thing to do? What's the best use of, of the resources? How can I invest in a way that honors God? Every decision we make can be made in the wisdom of God. Being led by the Holy Spirit to decide what is best according to biblical principles, that's wisdom. Being led by the Holy Spirit to decide to do what is best according to biblical principles. Nowhere is that more important than in the decisions we make. Isn't it interesting, now that you've heard Paul, listen to his Lord and our Lord. Teach us how to pray. Listen with that ear, okay? Just tune your ear to that for a second. Matthew 6, 9, we call it the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Here's the, here's the explanation. On earth as what? As it is in heaven. Divine principles, divine wisdom that God reside, that reside with God in heaven are to be those governing principles for our deciding in life. What we do, what we say, how we interact. Oh, the opening of verse 17 is piercing. Don't be foolish. Be careful and intentional in how you're living, making the most of your time by being a steward. Don't be foolish, but understand what God wants, what God expects from his will, in his will, as his will. So how does this relate to us, time management and foolishness? Well, are, are you being foolish with how you use your time? And the answer is all of us would say yes sometimes. But can we make some adjustments on better usage of our time? How about this? Are you being foolish in how you spend your money? That's redeeming the time. Are you being foolish by how you care for your relationships? I think the best way to take a step back 
and to measure how we're using the gift of time that the Lord has given us in, in this life and for this span of our, our earthly visit, as, Paul, as Peter says on this earth, is to measure it against eternity. Can I say something profound? Eternity is a long time. It lasts forever. Martin Luther said this, to God, this world is only a preparation and scaffolding for yonder world. Like how he calls heaven yonder world. Scaffolding. You know what scaffolding is? You put it up around a building to, to work on it as it gets higher. A wealthy builder must have much scaffolding for a house. When the house is finished, he tears the scaffolding down. That's our lives in this earth. An artist must rub his mix and his colors and clean his brush. A barber must first wash his hands and strop his razor. These activities are nothing but preparation. In like manner, God has made this whole world, our lives, as preparation for yonder life. I love that phrase. There, matters will for the first time really go according to the power and the will of God, end quote. Too many of us and too many times we think of this life as the end of our existence and the end of our purpose and the end of our pursuits. I think Luther helps us. This is all just preparation. Moses even says 70, 80 years, eh. What about eternity? What about forever? We read it earlier, James 4 14. Don't you know your life will be, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow? You're just a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes away. Our lives are steam off a cup of coffee that as though instantly evaporates as soon as you see it. Peter says, Conduct yourselves in fear during your time of stay on the earth. Wow. These three verses commend us and command us to have a plan for our stay here. A philosophy of life and living. A plan for our roles with goals. God has a death clock set for all of us. That website is kind of funny. God has our days numbered. And I think he's asking us in this passage, are we spending our allotted time on this earth in such a way that he will be pleased? You know, I think of our trials, our troubles, our conflicts on this earth. They are temporal and temporary. I think of the joys and happinesses that are on this earth. They are a taste of joy and happiness forever. Let me ask you again. What, what would your life be like if you knew you had a day or a week or a month to live? However you would answer that, reveal your true priorities. And there's no reason we can't apply those priorities not knowing the date of our ending. I'm so glad, I'm so glad I can even consider this because God saved me. 
He gave me faith to believe the good news that his son died for me. He gave me hope because I believe by his grace that God raised him from the dead after he was crucified for my sin. And he offers anyone, anyone who would come and run to him for rescue from this evil age and repent from their sins and trust him to take care of them now and in eternity. He offers you eternal salvation. And I, I just would beg you, don't say no to such a gift. And if you've had such a gift, give him back the time and the life that he purchased with his own blood. Great opportunity to talk to your family and your care group about the things that are in this passage. I'm going to encourage you to make them life applications as you should discuss them.